Creationists are often accused of believing that the whole Bible should be taken literally. This is not so. Rather, the key to the correct understanding of any part of the Bible is to ascertain the intention of the author of the portion of the book under discussion. This is not as difficult as it may seem, as the Bible obviously contains, first, poetry, as in the Psalms, where the repetition or parallelism of ideas is in accordance with Hebrew ideas of poetry, without the rhyme or meter that are important parts of traditional English poetry. This, by the way, is the reason why the Psalms can be translated into other languages and still retain most of their literary appeal and poetic piquancy, while the elements of rhyme and meter are usually lost when traditional Western poetry is translated into other languages. Second, there's the category of parables in the Bible, as in many of the sayings of Jesus, such as the parable of the sower, Matthew 13, 3 through 23 which Jesus himself clearly states to be a parable and about which he gives meanings for the various items, such as the seed and the soil. Then there's the category of prophecy, as in the books of the last section of the Old Testament, Isaiah to Malachi. And then there are the letters, as in the New Testament epistles written by Paul, Peter, John, and others. Then we have some biography, as in the Gospels, and autobiography and testimony, as in the book of Acts where the author Luke after narrating the Apostle Paul's conversion on the road to Damascus as a historical fact in Acts 9 verses 1 through 19, then describes two further occasions when Paul included this conversion experience as part of his own personal testimony. See Acts 22, 1 through 21 and 26 verse 1 through 22. And then, last but not least, there's the authentic historical facts, as in the books of 1st and 2nd Kings, etc. So, the author's intentions with respect to any book of the Bible is usually quite clear from the style and the content. Who then was the author of Genesis, and what intention is revealed by his style and the content of what he wrote? Should Genesis Be Taken Literally? By Russell Grigg The Lord Jesus himself and the Gospel writers said that the law was given by Moses in Mark 10.3, Luke 24.27, and John 1.17, and the uniform tradition of the Jewish scribes and the early Christian fathers, and the conclusion of conservative scholars to the present day, is that Genesis was written by Moses. This does not preclude the possibility that Moses had access to patriarchal records, preserved by being written on clay tablets and handed down from father to son via the line of Adam, Seth, Noah, Shem, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and so on. As there are 11 verses in Genesis which read, These are the generations, which means origins, or by extension, record of the origins. As these statements all come after the events they describe, and the events recorded in each division all took place before rather than after the death of the individuals so named. They may very well be subscripts or closing signatures, that is to say colophons, rather than superscripts or headings. If this is so, the most likely explanation for them is that Adam, Noah, Shem, and the others each wrote down an account of the events which occurred in his lifetime, and Moses, under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, selected and compiled these, along with his own comments, into the book we now know as Genesis. Chapters 12 through 50 of Genesis were very clearly written as authentic history, 
as they describe the lives of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and his twelve sons, who were the ancestral heads of the twelve tribes of Israel. The Jewish people from earliest biblical times to the present have always regarded this portion of Genesis as the true record of their nation's history. So what about the first 11 chapters of Genesis, which are our main concern as these are the ones that have incurred the most criticism from modern scholars, scientists, and skeptics? Let's see if any of these chapters are poetry. To answer this question, we need to examine a little more depth just as to what is involved in parallelism of ideas that constitutes Hebrew poetry. Let's consider the book of Psalms, chapter 1, verse 1, which reads the following. Blessed is the man that walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. Here we see triple parallelism in the nouns and verbs used. We've got the group of walks, stands, sits. Then the second group, counsel, way, seat. And thirdly, wicked, sinners, scoffers. As well as this overt parallelism, there is also a covert or subtle progression of meaning. In the first group of words, walk suggests short-term acquaintance, stand implies readiness to discuss, and sit speaks of long-term involvement. In the second group, we have counsel betokens general advice. The word way indicates a chosen course of action, and seat signifies a set condition of mind. In the third grouping, wicked describes the ungodly, Sinner characterizes the actively wicked, and scoffers portrays the contemptuously wicked. Other types of Hebrew poetry include contrastive parallelism, as in Proverbs 27.6. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. And complete of parallelism, as in Psalms 46.1. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in time of need. And so let's circle back around to the question. Are any of the first 11 chapters of Genesis poetry? In an answer, no, because these chapters do not contain information or invocation in any of the forms of Hebrew poetry, in either overt or covert form, and because Hebrew scholars of substance are agreed that this is so. So note, there's certainly a repetition in Genesis chapter 1. For example, and God said. It occurs ten times, and God saw that it was good, very good, seven times. After this, their kind, ten times, and the evening and the morning were the day, six times. However, these repetitions have none of the poetic forms discussed above. Rather, they are statements of fact and thus a record of what happened, and possibly for emphasis, to indicate the importance of the words repeated. So, are any of the chapters parables? No. Because when Jesus told a parable, he either said it was a parable, or he introduced it with a simile, so making it plain to the hearers that it was a parable, as on many occasions when he said, The kingdom of heaven is like. No such claim is made or style used by the author of Genesis chapters 1-11. through 11. Then are any of the chapters prophecy? Not in their full context, although two promises of God are prophetic in the sense that their fulfillment would be seen in the future. One of these is Genesis 3.15, which was the pronouncement of God by the serpent, that is, Satan, in metaphorical form. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. Many have interpreted the seed in this verse as the Messiah, including most evangelicals and even the Jewish Targums, hence the Talmudic expression, 
heals of the Messiah. The Messiah would suffer wounds to his feet on the cross, but would completely destroy Satan's power. This verse also hints at the virginal conception, as the Messiah is called the seed of the woman, contrary to the normal biblical practice of naming the father rather than the mother of a child. The other occasion is in Genesis 8, verses 21 through 22, and 9, verses 11 through 17. And the Lord said in his heart, I will not again curse the ground any more for man's sake, and the water shall no more become a flood to destroy all flesh. So are any of the chapter's letters, biography or autobiography, or personal testimony? This is where we need to consider some of the subscripts. If Adam knew the events of creation days 1 through 6, they must have been revealed to him by God, as Adam was not made until day 6, and so he could have known only of them if God had told him. This view is reinforced by the words, These are the generations of. The NIV translation says, This is the account of. Then in Genesis 2 verse 4 it says, The heavens of the earth when they were created. The details of day 7, the rest day, are included before this in Genesis 2 verse 2 through 3, thereby completing, as we might expect, the record of a full seven-day week, before the subscript or closing signature appears. If this is getting a little complicated, try to keep up. It'll all come together. Now let's follow the events of Genesis 2 verse 4 through 5 1. This section tells us about Adam and his wife Eve and their sons, and reads very much like a personal account of what Adam knew, saw, and experienced concerning the Garden of Eden and the creation of Eve in chapter 2, their rebellion against God in chapter 3, and the deeds of their descendants in chapter 4 to 5 verse 1, albeit written in the third person. This section ends with the words, This is the book of generations of Adam. It is feasible that Adam could have written Genesis chapter 1 through 2-4 as the result of his pre-fall conversation with God, and Genesis chapter 2-4 through 5-1 as the record of his own experiences. There is no problem concerning his ability to have done so. Adam was created a mature man, endowed with all of the DNA, knowledge, and skill he needed to perform all the tasks assigned to him by God. No caveman he... Adam knew enough horticulture to dress and to keep the Garden of Eden, and ample intelligence to recognize and name the distinct kinds of animals in Genesis 2.19. He and his wife Eve could converse with God without ever having learned an alphabet, and there is no reason to suppose that he was not fully skilled in writing also. What about the supposed contradictions between the order of events in Genesis chapter 2 and the order given in chapter 1? There are none. If with the NIV, we read, Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Genesis chapter 2, 8. And now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the beasts of the field. That's Genesis 2, 19. It is clearly seen that chapter 2 states that the plants and animals were formed before Adam. Adam named the animals, Genesis 2, 20. They obviously were already in existence. There is no contradictory significance in the order of animals listed in Genesis 2.20. It is probably the order in which Adam met the animals, while the order of their creation is given in Genesis 1.20-25. Dr. Henry Morris comments on this. It was only the animals in closest proximity and most likely as theoretical candidates for companionship to man that were actually brought to him. These included the birds of the air, the cattle, verse 20, probably the domesticated animals, and the beasts of the field, which were evidently the smaller wild animals that would live near human habitations. 
Those not included were the fish of the sea, the creeping things, and the beasts of the earth mentioned in Genesis 1.24, which probably were those wild animals living at considerable distance from man and his cultivated fields. Concerning the names of geographical sites, we have no idea what the configuration of the land or the rivers were before the flood, because the pre-flood world was completely destroyed. The land areas and rivers named before the flood do not correspond to similarly named features after the flood. The purpose of Genesis 2.18-25 is not to give another account of creation, but to show that there was no kinship whatsoever between Adam and the animals. None was like him, and so none could provide fellowship or companionship for him. Why not? Because Adam had not evolved from them, but was a living soul whom God had created in his own image. See Genesis 2.7 and 1.27. This means, among other things, that God created Adam to be a person whom he could address and who could respond to and interact with himself. Here, as in many other places, the plain statements of the Bible confront and contradict the notion of human evolution. There is therefore enough evidence for us to conclude that Adam was most probably the author of Genesis 2-4 through 5-1, and that this is his record of his own experiences with respect to events in the Garden of Eden, the creation of Eve, the fall, and in the lives of Cain, Abel, and Seth. The next section is from 5.1 to 6.9 and deals with a line from Adam to Noah, ending with, These are the generations, or origins, of Noah. The next section is from 6.9 to 10.1 and deals mainly with the ark and the flood, ending with, Now these are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. The wording of this subscript suggests that this portion was written by one of Noah's sons, probably Shem, as Moses was descended from Shem. These chapters read very much like an eyewitness account because of the intimacy of detail which they contain. Consider Genesis 8, 6-12 and note how this contains the ring of authenticity which is characteristic of an eyewitness account. It may even have been Shem's diary. I'm going to read Genesis 8, 6-12. At the end of forty days, Noah opened the window of the ark that had been made and sent forth a raven. It went to and fro until the waters were dried up from the earth. Then he sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters had subsided from the face of the ground. But the dove found no place to set her foot, and she returned to him to the ark, for the waters were still on the face of the whole earth. So he put forth his hand and took her and brought her into the ark with him. He waited another seven days, and again he sent forth a dove out of the ark. And the dove came back to him in the evening, and behold, in her mouth was a freshly plucked olive leaf. So no one knew that the waters had subsided from the earth. Then he waited another seven days and sent forth a dove, and she did not return to him any more. Such meticulous details are the stuff of authentic eyewitness testimony. They have the ring of truth. There is thus a substantial body of evidence that these portions of Genesis delineated by the subscripts were written by the persons named therein, for the purpose of making and passing on a permanent record. So then, were these first 11 chapters written as a record of authentic historical facts? The answer is yes, for several reasons. First, there is the internal evidence of the book of Genesis itself. As already mentioned, chapters 12 through 50 have always been regarded by the Jewish people as being the record of their own true history, 
and the style of writing contained in chapters 1 through 11 is not strikingly different from that in chapters 12 through 50. And second, Hebrew scholars of standing have always regarded this to be the case. Thus, Professor Barr, a professor of Hebrew at the University of Oxford, has written the following. Probably, as so far as I know, there is no professor of Hebrew or Old Testament at any world-class university who does not believe that the writers of Genesis 1-11 through intended to convey to their readers the ideas that a. Creation took place in a series of six days which were the same as the days of 24 hours we now experience. b. The figures contained in the Genesis genealogies provided by simple addition a chronology from the beginning of the world up to later stages in the biblical story. c. Noah's flood was understood to be worldwide and extinguish all human and animal life except for those in the ark. Or, to put it negatively, the apologetic arguments which suppose the days of creation to be long eras of time, the figures of years not to be chronological, and the flood to be a merely local Mesopotamian flood, are not taken seriously by any such professors as far as I know. And third, one of the main themes of Genesis is the sovereignty of God. This is seen in God's actions in respect of four outstanding events in Genesis 1-11, through creation, the fall, the flood, and the Babel dispersion. And then we have his relationship to four outstanding people in Genesis chapters 12-50, through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. There is thus a unifying theme to the whole of the book of Genesis, which falls flat to the ground if any part is mythical and not true history. On the other hand, each portion reinforces the historical authenticity of the other. Fourthly, the principal people mentioned in Genesis chapters 1-11 through are referred to as real, historical, not mythical, people in the rest of the Bible, often many times. For example, Adam, Eve, Cain, Abel, and Noah are referred to in 15 other books of the Bible. Fifthly, the Lord Jesus Christ referred to the creation of Adam and Eve as a real historical event by quoting Genesis 1.27 and 2.24 in his teaching about divorce in Matthew 19.3-6 and Mark 10.2-9. And he also referred to Noah as a real historical person and the flood as a real historical event in his teaching about the coming of the Son of Man in Matthew 24.37-39 and Luke 17.26-27. And sixth, unless the first 11 chapters of Genesis are authentic historical events, the rest of the Bible is incomplete and incomprehensible as to its full meaning. The theme of the Bible is redemption and may be outlined as thus. First, God's redeeming purpose is revealed in Genesis 1 through 11. Second, God's redeeming purpose progresses from Genesis 2 to Jude 25. And thirdly, God's redeeming purpose is consummated in Revelation 1-22. through But why does mankind need to be redeemed? What is it that he needs to be redeemed from? The answer is given in Genesis 1-11, through namely, by the ruin brought by sin. Unless we know that the entrance of sin to the human race was a true historical fact, God's purpose in providing a substitutionary atonement is a mystery. Conversely, the historical truth of Genesis 1-11 through shows that all mankind has come under the righteous anger of God and need salvation from the penalty, power, and presence of sin. Seventh, unless the events of the first chapters of Genesis are true history, 
The Apostle Paul's explanation of the gospel in Romans chapter 5 and of the resurrection in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 has no meaning. Paul writes, For as by one man, Adam's disobedience, many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one, Jesus, shall many be made righteous. Romans 5.19 And, For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. And so it is written, The first man Adam was made a living soul, the last Adam was made a quickening spirit. 1 Corinthians 15, 21-22 and verse 45. The historical truth of the record concerning the first Adam is a guarantee that what God says in his word about the last Adam, Jesus, is also true. Likewise, the historical, literal truth of the record concerning Jesus is a guarantee that what God says about the first Adam is also historically and literally true. Now, let's return to the question which forms the title of this article. Should Genesis be taken literally? The answer is, if we apply the normal principles of biblical exegesis and ignore pressure to make the text conform to the evolutionary prejudices of our age, it is overwhelmingly obvious that Genesis was meant to be taken in a straightforward, obvious sense as an authentic, literal, historical record of what actually happened. So listeners, while you're studying the early chapters of Genesis, have you felt like you're not learning as much as you might if you had a written commentary? As amazing and meaningful as the book of Genesis is, I want to learn everything that I can from the theology and history that started, well, everything in life. But as many of the details in the book of Genesis relate to science, it would be great if we also had a scientific commentary. That's why I recommend that you get a copy of a great book by Dr. Jonathan Sarfati, The Genesis Account. This classic commentary on Genesis 1-11 through contains a thorough analysis of the text itself, and has a number of features that set it apart from many other Genesis commentaries. It defends the biblical creationist position. Creation in six consecutive normal days, death resulting from Adam's fall, and a globe-covering flood, and confusion of languages at Babel, and in the process it explains how the rest of the Bible interprets Genesis in a straightforward manner. While skillfully documenting how interpreters throughout church history have taught the topics of the book of Genesis, and that long-age, death-before-sin views were a reaction to 19th-century uniformitarian geology, the book also provides cutting-edge scientific support for Genesis history. But most importantly, it demonstrates that all doctrines of Christianity begin in Genesis 1-11, through and so straightforwardly answers the common objections to a plain understanding of these crucial Genesis texts. You'll find your own copy of the Genesis account at creation.com store. I am Joseph Darnell. For everyone at Creation Ministries International around the world, Thanks for listening to the last 100 episodes, and God bless.